to our study in Genesis this morning, what we're going to do, as you remember, those of you who have been with us for most of the time, we have studied through, at least from our perspective, what we felt the Holy Spirit wanted us to emphasize, not everything to be sure, but we have highlighted those issues and that revelation and work of God that we felt the Holy Spirit wants us to do in order to for us not only to give us a clear in order not only to give us a clearer understanding of the first three chapters of Genesis, but to show us that those three chapters of Genesis are the umbrella under which everything else in the Bible relates. The revelation of chapters one, two, and three is permeating everything else, is controlling and moving everything else for the rest of the Bible. And one of the things I'm struggling with, and I think I'm going to be overcome with this, is not only to deal with what's in the rest of the chapters that we're going to be going through to the chapter 11, because that's where we'll think we're stopping, but to then to make a quick review and overview, if you would, of the Old Testament to show you more specifically how chapters 1, 2, and 3 relate to God's purpose being carried out until the end, which we see culminating in Revelation 21 and 22. So that which begins in chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis culminate in Revelation 21 and 22. Isn't it interesting? The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are, if you would, the bookends for everything else in our Bible. And you can draw a line from those first two chapters all the way to the last few chapters and everything in between connects to, has a direct association with, and moves toward from Genesis to Revelation to the fulfillment of what God is doing. You see, this Bible of ours is the most incredible story and revelation that the world has ever seen. And hopefully we will begin to see it in a much grander and more inclusive way than we've ever seen it before, rather than just this book and that book and this one does that and how does this one figure in. But as we read the rest of the book, we read it within the context of the revelation that is given to us in the first three chapters, keeping that revelation clearly in the fore of our mind and consciousness and in our looking. And we will see regularly and consistently, constantly, persistently, the issues that occur in the first three chapters, we'll see them throughout. We'll see them throughout. So this morning, though, I had finished the message or the teaching which I was going to give today from chapter 4 all the way through, I think it was chapter 9 of Genesis. And then I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, review, review. And I said, no, no, they don't need review. Review, review. You see, one of the things that you have to remember with God is he doesn't understand the things that we understand, right? You know, we have such a grasp on everything. <clears throat> so I asked Jean, I said, what do you, do you think I should review? And, and, and she corroborated that. And, and I talked to Evan May and he corroborated that. And so here we are this morning reviewing. I only mentioned those two names in case you're in disagreement, you can fault them. So, 
This morning what I'm going to do, I'm going to quickly go through, as quickly as I can, what we have already learned. We're going to highlight what I'm hoping are the salient issues that we need to remember. We're going to skip over some things. I probably will have forgotten some other things. But hopefully this will bring us, if you would, up the snuff, up to a place that we will be ready next week to venture into chapter 4 and beyond in Genesis, taking again with us what we have learned in the first three chapters and begin to apply them and see how they operate in the next chapters. Not forgetting, but using this, this information as the foundation of everything else that we're going to study. Father, Father, if your word is this incredible, who are you? Father, if your word is this powerful, who are you? Father, we praise you that you have given us sufficient revelation and understanding to know that you exist and to have heard the gospel for our salvation and now to walk with you in obedience as you take us from this first creation into the next permanent eternal creation. Father, we thank you for this. Father, what a glorious minefield you have given us. The riches of your grace and mercy. Father, the incredible revelation of just the little bit that we know. Father, we can only imagine, and we can't even do that well, what it will be like to experience what Revelation 22.4 says, and we shall see your face. Father, until that day, Father, we give you praise anticipating our eternal home with you. Father, teach us today, minister to us today, fill us today, instruct us today, and Father, we ask this not because you are reluctant, but because you are passionate about this. Therefore, Father, we believe that this is exactly what you're going to do by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's do a quick review of Genesis 1 through 3. For those of you who have not been at all the teachings, I think there have been 12 of them all together, if I can remember correctly. If you would like CDs of some of those or any of those or the whole of them or whatever, whether you've been in the class or not, you just need to let the office know and we'll be glad to make you CDs for that so you can keep up with us. So Genesis 1 to 3. First of all, in the beginning of Genesis, in these chapters, there are at least four things that God tells us. There are four fundamental truths that we learn in the first, four cha- first three chapters of Genesis. First of all, God tells us about himself, which is the most significant revelation and understanding that any of us can and will receive and need to receive. God tells us about himself. Secondly, 
he tells us about ourselves. We cannot ever come to know ourselves for truly who we are until we know something about who God is and about his ways and purposes. We can look in the mirror and we can study psychology, we can look at science, we can study the genome pool, we can do all of the natural things and we will never understand man and who we are except in a very physiological, psychological way, very limitedly. But who we really are is who we are before God. What really matters is not who I am in the natural relationships of my life, essentially. What is absolutely necessary to know is who am I before God? Who does God say that I am? This is the most important issue and the most important knowledge that we need to have of ourselves and of one another. And not only are we knowing who we are, but we're learning about our condition. What condition, what kind of a relationship, what kind of connection or disconnection do we have to this God? Then three, he lays the foundation about the world in which we live. What kind of a world is this? What's going on? Why is it going on? What can we hope for? What can we try to do to improve? Is there anything we can do? What's happening in this world? I mean, when you turn on the evening news and you hear someone shooting 22 people in the school and half of them and most of them are children, or you learn of all these atrocities that are going on in the world, how many of us ever stop and think, what in the world is going on? What we will never know, not to any real and real, honest way, clear way is the word I want it, until we know what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. It will lay the foundation of what is going on in the world. And number four, not only does God tell us about himself and about ourselves and our condition before God and what this world is all about, but then he tells us about his redemptive work. He tells us how to be redeemed from the curse, from the sin, from Satan, from his wrath. We understand what that begins to be about in these first three chapters. And so you see, as we look at this, we begin to understand that there is absolutely no way to understand and receive and appreciate and live in the good of what the rest of the Bible says to the place that God wants us to if we're basically ignorant of the first three chapters of Genesis. Someone asked me, and they continually ask me, what's your favorite book in the Bible? Well, I always say Genesis, not because it's my favorite book to read because of the stories or whatever, but I say it's my favorite because in this book is laid the very foundation upon which chapter 4 of Genesis all the way through to Revelation 22. It is a foundation upon which the rest sits. Therefore, it has to be my favorite book. It has to be. So let's begin to talk about Genesis, the structure of Genesis and the content as we move this through this very quickly. First of all, Genesis 1 through 2, uh, 1, chapter 2, all the way through 3. And let me look at this a second because what I think I have here is I've redone the 
the lesson, and I think that that redoing, maybe it did. Okay. First of all, Genesis chapter 1. Now, notice this. Genesis chapter 1 begins 1-1, but it doesn't end in the last verse in chapter 1. Chapter 1 really ends, remember, in chapter 2, verse 3. So remember, when I say chapter 1, we're including the first three verses of chapter 2. It's just one of those things that when they made a division here, the man who did this put those three verses over there, and I, I think, and most people would agree, those three verses belong at the end of chapter 1. So what is chapter 1 telling us? First of all, it tells us right off the bat that God is the creator, that God is the creator. Now, you may think, well, what news? What news? Well, you see, man doesn't believe this. Man doesn't believe it. Man believes all kinds of other issues. And even if man does believe that God is a creator, most don't understand the connection that we have and our requirement to obey this one who has made us. So God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, how did he do it? How long did it take him? Well, Genesis says something about that. But the essence isn't, were there really six literal days? Was it really this way or that way? Did these people really live those numbers of years? What about the dinosaurs? That's not the essence of Genesis. The essence of Genesis in Genesis 1 is this. God created. So let us not be sidetracked. It's not wrong to delve into these other issues. But we want to make sure that what is essence and importance about my life is not if I understand the geological history or the record that looks like it's there or looks like it isn't there. What is important for my life is I understand this God who has created me is the very one before whom I will come to stand one day in eternal judgment. He is the creator. God alone is the creator of all that exists. There is no one besides him. He alone is God. He doesn't create because he needs to. He creates because he wants to share himself with his people whom he will create and place in his creation. Verses 3 to 25 in chapter 1 talks about the activity of God in creating. And as we said before, in these verses is just a, an outline of what God has done. If you talk to an architect, and you're looking at the home which he has built, and you ask him, well, Mr. Jones, what did you do to build this house? Well, there are a number of ways he can explain what he went through to build a house. But one of the ways is, well, let me first show you the blueprint of the outline and the various structure of the house, just the frame of the house. Here's what I did. I lay the foundation. I put up the walls. I put up the stair. Put a second floor. Put, you know, the frame of the roof. And, and that's how I built my house. I gathered all the material and did this, and that's how I built my house. So he begins to tell you a general day-by-day -day description of how he builds this house called the creation. And so in verses 3 to 25, the creation is recorded. You remember in three sets of triads. Remember what we said? Sky, sea, soil for earth. Remember that? In verse 3, he describes the creation of the sky or the heavens. 
In verse 6, he begins to describe the creation of what? Seas. Remember the waters. In verse 9, he goes to the soil or the earth. He gives you a general description of what happens. And then he comes right back, beginning in verse 14, and he starts going through the same thing, but he fills in this time a little more detail. Here's what I did. I built the frame, and there's a frame. And then now, in the living room, I just built the frame. Now, I come back and say, now, on the walls of the living room, I put the sheetrock, and I hung this, and I put, that's all he's doing here. And so in verse 14, he goes back and gives you more information about what he did in verse 3 about the sky, right? In verse, what is the next verse? 20, he does what? He fills in about the information concerning the sea. And in verse 24, he gives you the details, or verse 24 and 25, he gives you the details of the earth, how he fills it in. So that's what's happening in the first 25 verses of Genesis. As God gives us a sketchy outline, filling in the blanks just enough to let us know, I am the God who has created, and this is what I've done. Then the third thing we learn from Genesis chapter 1, man. In verse 26 comes the most important statement concerning man that there is in the Bible. The most important statement that concerns man is in verse 26 of Genesis. It is God's purpose statement. It tells us why are you created? What is your purpose? Why are you here? It is that verse which we must use and apply to every situation in our lives if we are going to understand what's going on from God's perspective. What is God doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? In order to answer that, we must know Genesis 1, 26. It is the all-controlling central purpose of God in creating us. All of it's there. Everything about us is in those, that verse. So what does it say? Let us make man in our image. There it is. Our image after our likeness. There it is. That's the encapsulation of the significance of everything about my life and about your life. Everything about my life and your life is encapsulated and included in that our image image after our likeness. Do we get that? Do we have that? If you don't, you're going to be floundering out there because you're not going to know why this is happening, what's going on here, what about that, what is God doing over here. It may not give you the specifics of revelation, but what it will do is settle us with the confidence that we are God's, that he has created us to be his own, and that he knows what he's doing and that we can trust him in all things, and that he is good, and he is blessing us with the greatest blessings today to be fulfilled in our revelation in a greater way on that day when we stand before him. You remember in verses 26, 27, 28, and 215, in these verses especially, let me just succinctly say 118 and 215. God gives man three mandates that man, that God will use to walk out or fulfill his purpose. Again, what is God's purpose for us? We are created 
in his image. We are created to be those who on the earth in our personal life and in our community life, in our marriage life, in our friendships, in our community life, to be reflective of who God is in himself. We are created to be reflective of who God is and how God is. That's why we're here. Everything about my life is to be a revelation of something of and about God. Everything. How is that to be worked out? It's to be worked out through these three mandates. So the first mandate is in 128. The first mandate says what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The second mandate is at the end of that verse, and it says, have dominion. Remember, over the fish and the frogs and the lilies and whatever of all the earth. Take dominion. And the third mandate is in chapter 2, verse 15. It says what? Go out and work and keep the garden. You remember the three mandates. What are they about? They are God's means of giving us the ability to properly and accurately image him upon the earth. Again, we've gone through this quickly, but we've gone through this in greater detail before. And so you need a detail. You have to get the tapes, I suppose. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, give the completion. God created it. He finished. He rested the seventh day. He hallowed and sanctified the seventh day. And that's where the Sabbath comes from. So you remember, he completed the actual activity of working to create the creation, but he has not stopped working. He's still working, but the activity of creating is over. Now what he's doing is sustaining and moving and maintaining his creation. It's a different form of work. And so the seventh is given as God's means of saying, I am finished. All is ready for man to be living. Now, by the way, you do see that Adam and Eve were created toward the end of the sixth day. Remember, toward the end of the sixth day. And they were created to literally live within the continuance of the seventh day. Now, we realize there'll be an eighth day and a ninth day and there'll be days and nights. But we're talking about the day of God's rest. Adam and Eve mankind, God's people, were created to live within the context of a relationship and fellowship and communion with God that God calls my rest, my rest, a a communion of peace, a communion of joy, a communion of love, a communion where God and man dwell together in the most intimate fellowship that could happen. That's where we were created to live as God's image upon the earth. Verse 126, we were created to live in the fullness of the rest of the the relational context of God, and that's what that rest is all about. As God now will maintain and move us along in the context of being at rest in him. Then we move to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 25. Again, why 4? Because the first three verses really belong in chapter 1. So chapter 2 begins with verse 4, 25 ends the chapter. This chapter records now the details of the creation of the garden and the details of the creation of man. So now God is now giving, standing back and saying, look, this is what I've done. I've created this. I've created that. I created man. I created a woman. I, you know, there it is. I put them in there, and they, we're living. It's seventh day. Uh, by the way, let me give you some more details about at least two issues here. 
Let me step back a little bit and give you some more issues, Jerry, and kind of fill in the blanks. So the Lord is going to give us the details of the creation of the garden and the creation of man. Now, before we do that, where do, where do these verses 4 to 25 fit in chapter 1? Yeah, I was reading something the other day. It's amazing that some folks, when they come to this section of Scripture, believe that this is an entirely different and new story of the creation. <laughs> look at verse 26 in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Hopefully some of you have a Bible open. Chapter 1, verse 26, what does it say? Let us make man. What, what, what verse, I mean, uh, what, um, um, what present past intent, what do you call that? What tense is that? Let us make man. Is that present, past, or future? That's present tense. Let us do something. Let us cut the grass. The next verse, and God created. I cut the grass. Let me cut the grass in verse 26. Verse 27, I cut the grass. Now, do you suppose that anything happened between those two verses? What happened between I, I'm going to cut the grass, and I did cut the grass. What happened? The activity of cutting the grass. Is that, is that mind-blowing? I mean, can you imagine that? Is that deep theology? I'm going to cut the grass. I did cut the grass. Between those two verses come a whole lot of activity and information. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 25 fit between verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to create man after my own image. Verse 27, I created man after my own image. And in chapter 2, I'm going to give you the details of what happened between these two verses. That's what's going on here. That's where it falls out. So first of all, let's talk about the garden. The garden is a place to live. 2.8, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So first of all, a garden is a place on earth to live. The garden was created to be man's dwelling place on earth with God. Second, it was a place of fellowship. The Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. So it was a place where man and God fellowshiped together. Three, or C, it was a place of blessing, verses 9 to 12. The Lord made I'm just going to skip some of the parts of the verses. And the Lord God made, remember, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden. So it's a place of blessing. And it's a place of provision. Everything that man needed to be provided for naturally, physically, is in that garden. Third, it's a place of man's responsibility. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. And so it has these issues occurring in the garden. Now, man, God creates man, verse 7 to 17. You remember those verses where the Lord stooped down and out of the dirt, he picked up dirt and began to fashion and form man out of the dirt of the ground. You remember that? And he blew in him what? Oh, the ruach, the breath of life. The ruach is either breath, spirit, very often they're synonymous. God took the dirt and he created a man. You know, it's interesting that when you look, I think it's at John chapter 9. There's a blind man. Isn't that John chapter 9? 
There's a man who's born blind. And Jesus is going to heal him. Do you remember how Jesus did it? He bent down and took a load of mud, dirt. He spit in it, made paste, and put it on the man's face. And when the man washed, he said, go wash. He was able to see. Do you remember that? Now, the astounding thing is this. I think many of us have seen people who are blind. You know, their eyes are, not making fun, but the eyes are different looking, correct? Because they can't see. But basically, you know who they are. But when they brought this man to their, his parents, and they weren't joking, he looks similar, but we're not sure if that's our son. What are you talking about? He's been living with you all. Could it be that this guy was born with a genital malformation of no eye sockets? And Jesus created eye sockets. Could it be? Yeah, it could be. It could be. Thus, that would explain some of the, we're not sure he looks like him, but, mm, you know, we're not, we've never seen. And the Bible says never before has this kind of a miracle occurred. Never before. I think Jesus is doing a work of recreation here that is emblematic of what, pointing back to what happened in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 17, to show I am the God who created you out of dirt. I am that very same one. I think that's what's happening here. I could be wrong. And in verses 18 to 25, you remember the Lord made man in verse 18. It's very good, but then verse 18 Adam is alone. Why is it not good for Adam to be alone? It was not good. Why? Not because Adam was lonely, but Adam being alone, a single person, cannot exemplify or manifest community. How many people does it take to manifest a community? How many people does it take to walk in unity? Two, can it be said that you as a single person are walking in unity with yourself? No, it doesn't make sense. By the way, last week when Jason talked about Islam, hopefully you picked up that Islam thinks Allah is unity. Well, how can one be unity? You are in union with another, and the two of you can be in unity or disunity. It takes two. And so since God is a tri-person God, in order to manifest God, according to Genesis 1.26, Man has to have another person there like him so that the two will function as one, verse 24, you see. And in functioning as one, the two are representative of the community on earth that displays the community that God has within himself. That's the marriage, and of course it gets larger in the church, that the community of the church is to reflect the community of God. So the Lord creates woman as man's suitable helper, giving her to him as his wife. Helper for what? Helper that the two will become one in such a way that these two walking together will display the unity or the oneness of our triune God. That's what that means, that she is to God taking her out of him and bringing her back to him as they together are to unite and function in a relationship in such unity and harmony that they can be said to be one. They are two distinct people, but they function as one. 
which is revelation of who God is. Well, what is the meaning of Genesis chapter 1 and 2? When we look at these chapters, we see that there's a lot going on, but if us, for us to understand it, we have to look at these chapters. For us to understand it beyond just the natural, he did this, this, this. He made a man. He made a woman. He put him in the garden. The garden has a bunch of trees in it. has a river. You know, that he's supposed to till the ground and work it, and that's what's going on in Genesis. No, in order to understand Genesis from God's perspective, we have to do what Jesus says in, Gen- in Luke 24. Remember Luke 24, 27. He's walking back after the crucifixion with these two disciples. He's explaining to them what happened. And it says this, and beginning with Moses, where? Genesis. And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things that concerning himself. In order for us to understand this Bible, especially Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, we have to look at it through Christological eyes. We have to see it in relation to Christ. If we don't look at it in relation to its fulfillment in one man, we will miss what God is telling us. And so understanding um, um, Genesis, understanding the Old Testament, must be as a result of seeing the Old Testament through Christ. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that a man and a woman must be saved. He must be in Christ. He must be born again. And within that context, the Holy Spirit begins to give us eyes to see through God's perspective of Jesus Christ what he is saying in these verses, which are all typifying or looking forward to and being fulfilled in him himself. So everything about these chapters and everything about this Old Testament in relation to God, his person, and his work is going to be fulfilled and revealed in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. So let's very quickly, God's identity. I'm not going to take time with this. When you look at the chapter 1, you see a bunch of pronouns referring to God. A bunch of pronouns. Except in two places, these pronouns are he. God, he, he, he. Well, that makes sense. God, he. But then in verses 26 and 27, what happens? The singular pronoun turns into a plural pronoun. Remember the word Elohim. The word for God in chapter 1 is Elohim. El is singular, Elohim is plural. Now, it can mean intensification. It certainly can, meaning that we really want to emphasize this is God. But it means more than that. It is a subtle, maybe not so subtle, but it is an indication, a hint, that God is more than just one singular being. I'm sorry, a person. He is a tri-person. So we find through looking at the pronouns that the he is really a we, and the we is a he. God is one in his being and three in his person. Each person of God is of the same being and essence and substance of God. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fully, eternally, simultaneously, you know, equally God in himself, but not God by himself. So the Father is as much son, uh, God as the Son. The Son is as much God as the Father. The Holy Spirit is as much God as Father and Son. The Son is as much God as the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. None of the three persons of God is more God than the others. All three are equally God. They share the same being, the essence. How can this be? We don't know because this is God. This is the mystery of God. So First of all, we find out the most incredible revelation there is about God. What is it? 
that God is not a single person like Allah. He is a tri-person. By the way, I've shared this before. Why do Muslims get so upset and wild and crazy when someone vilifies or burns or trashes the Quran? Because that's all they have. We may not like someone tearing up our Bibles, but we're not going to go berserk. You know why? Because God has given us himself in Christ. Certainly the book is important. But when someone who loves you gives you one thing to remember them by, you're going to guard that thing. But we don't have a thing to guard. We have a God in whom, who lives within us. Amen? That's why we react differently. That's why they react so wildly about these issues. We don't have to do that. We have him who is truth and life and eternity. And so we don't have to act like that. And hopefully we don't. The garden, again, it's not just a typical garden. It's shown that by its location, its topography and contents, it means a lot more than just a garden. So forgive me for going through it so quickly. First of all, its location is in the east. When you look at the Old Testament, so much of God's presence is associated with the east. The tabernacle, the temple, are built facing the east. The east is the location. Jesus says, look to the eastern sky for my return. So first of all, the garden is in the east of Eden. It indicates it's not just not another you know, vegetable patch. This is something about God's dwelling. Secondly, the topography. What does it look like? It is elevated. The garden is elevated. How do we know? A river is flowing out of Eden. The rivers don't flow uphill. They flow downhill. So it's elevated. Remember, many things in the Bible associated with God are elevated. Remember, Jerusalem itself, the city of the great God, is at a 2,000-foot elevation. It is an elevated place. This is why the Lord said, do not build those idols and those uh, uh, shrines on those hills. He said, hills or relate to me. Build it where I tell you to build it. Elevation, mountains, Mount Horeb, remember that? Mount Carmel, these are the elevated places that indicate God's presence and his work. There are rivers. There's a river that flows out of Eden. Without, throughout the Bible, rivers are associated with the work of God. They are an ever-flowing, ever-life-giving, unquenchable presence of God, the, the, the very issue of life in the water. Free-flowing, living waters. Jesus tells a lady in chapter 4, he, she, he says, I will give you living waters. What does that mean? It means a free-flowing water that will come forth. She thinks, hey, I don't have to come to the well every day. I can get a stream of water right outside my house, and I can fill the buckets and have water every day. This is what she thinks he means, but he's talking about a river of relationship with him. So rivers are associated with God. There is a, actually, you know, remember one river is four tributaries and so on in the Garden of Eden. Eden. Secondly, they, third, there are trees in the garden. Trees are associated, again, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trees and fruits are the theme prominent in the, uh, in the Old Testament for God's presence. Moses holds forth what? A staff. Where does a staff come from? A tree. Noah is put into a, an ark. Where does the wood come from? Trees. Trees, fruit, fruit. Jesus is crucified on a tree. You see, the theme of trees in the garden. Precious stones 
Remember, it's made of gold and precious stones. And again, all of these kinds of things are in the temple, in the tabernacle, the vestment of the high priest. All of this indicating that this is not just another garden. Angels, angels are associated with God's presence and the guardians of God's presence. So the garden is much more than just a garden. It is God's temple on earth, the place of his communion with man. That's what it is. Man. What is man's association with this garden? He is to be prophet, priest, and king. Prophet. He is to take the word of God to the nations, be fruitful and multiply. Remember in Genesis 1.28. He is to be a priest, work and keep the garden in 2.15. And when you look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it's the same terminology that the Levites are given to work and guard and keep the sanctuary of God. So Adam is to be a priest to God. He's to be a king, take dominion, rule and reign as God's regent upon the earth. And so you see, man is given the mandate of being prophet, priest, and king before God. And in these three ways, he is going to manifest the image of God. This is Adam's mandate, and this is the mandate for all of God's people. These three mandates. But you remember what happened. The fall. The fall came in, and everything was reversed. Everything was rever uh, inverted. God's good creation became inverted. God's purpose and pleasure were cast off in favor of man's purpose and pleasure. Now think about how we live. Where the interests of God were replaced with the interests of men. Where the worship of God became the worship of man. But you see, God was prepared in chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. God's ready. And he slays an innocent as a substitute for the payment of the sin of the guilty. Thus showing what? That the plan of redemption and the way of redemption will be the death of an innocent in order to take care of our guilt. You see, the rest of the Bible from Old Testament, Genesis 4 to Malachi, is a working out of God's relentless pursuit to achieve his intention by overthrowing the effects of Adam's disobedience through the obedience of another man, which will result in a new heaven and a new earth. What God created in the beginning is going to be recreated at the end. And we're going to see glimpses of this recreation, this activity of God, as he uses his people as prophet, priests, and king. Remember? Israel, you're a nation, a royal nation of priests unto the Lord. As he uses his people and his revelation through his people to finally bring another man who in himself alone will complete everything that Adam was to complete and fully restore all of creation to its creative purpose of Genesis 1.26. So... There is a man who is fully and forever in the image of God. And in Christ, we are his images because we're in that image. Amen? Chapter 4 will begin next week, traveling through some of the details of this. Thank you so much.